Welcome to Ask of Expert, brought to you by the team at Vexit.com. Our bi-weekly series is the podcast helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's this week's host, Polly Craig. Well, hello, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I just want to share with you that I really appreciate you investing your valuable time and want to make sure that you're getting value in return. If you have questions for professionals or topics that you'd like to have covered, send an email to me directly at podcast at vexit.com and we'll find the answers for you right here on Ask of Expert. You can also find all the show notes and reference materials at vexit.com forward slash podcast. And remember, Vexit has two X's. A wise business person once said that the longest time in a manager's life is the time between when you lose faith in an employee and when you actually do something about it. Regardless of which side of the conversation you're on, it's never a pleasant situation, but in some circumstances, it's the right thing to do and must be done for the well-being of the business and for the employee. As a boss, how do you make sure that you handle a termination with dignity? And what rules are best to follow to ensure it doesn't come back to haunt you down the road? Today's guest is going to shed some light on this for us with his vast experience in labor, employment, and human rights law. As a partner at Pitblado Law, Todd Andres resolves day-to-day workplace issues, negotiates and drafts agreements, policies, and workplace rules, and represents clients at tribunals and courts. Today, he brings his expertise to teach us how the uncomfortable process of termination can run as smoothly as possible and be in the best interest of everyone involved. We're so pleased to have him with us today. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks for having me, Polly. This is a big waterfront, as many topics are when it comes to labor relations and dealing with our businesses and our employees. But why don't we just dive in and think about we're in a situation, we know we're at the point we need to do something, we have an employee, where do we begin? How do we know what the first step is? So if you don't have a background in employment law, the first step, in my view, is to pick up the phone and probably call an employment lawyer. You know, that's one of the first things I do is I try to teach my, my clients or train my, my clients to uh, call before they act. Um, because as a general proposition, that relatively small investment of picking up the phone and asking some questions, it's the ounce of prevention versus pound of cure. Because there are a lot of issues and a lot of pitfalls that you can get into. Terminating employment uh, it doesn't have to be terribly complicated, but it can be. And so uh, the more you know before you go into that situation, the better off you're going to be in the end, the better off the employee is going to be in the end. And and you did hit the nail on the head in your intro. When you treat an employee with dignity in the termination process, it's going to go a whole lot better than if you don't. So again, if you get all the information you need, you get all the background you need, you get all the resources in place, and then you think, okay, well, what's fair? You know, sometimes fair is going to be a just cause termination and sometimes fair is going to be putting together a termination package that appropriately reflects the employee's contribution to the business over their time. So first step is to get informed. And so there are a few ways to do that, but there's also a lot of misinformation or partial information out there. And one of the first things I do with clients when they come in is I I have a conversation with them where I give them what I call uh, employment law 101. So you mentioned, you know, if there's just cause, can you just 
dive a little deeper on that and what constitutes just cause? Just cause is a bit of a nebulous term and it's one of those ones where you know it if you see it. And even then it's sometimes tough to be 100% sure. I actually did pull up a, a quote from the Supreme Court of Canada in anticipation of that question. But the Supreme Court talk about the misconduct violating an essential condition of the employment contract or where it breaches the faith inherent to the work relationship or is fundamentally or directly inconsistent with the employee's obligations to his or her employer. So in other words, the relationship has to be irreparably harmed, right? They can't go on any longer. But there's a sort of a counterbalance to that. So there has to be the expectation that the employee is going to fulfill the terms of their contract. So, you know, obviously employment is based on a contract, whether it's a written contract or an implied or oral contract. Well, he has to do their part, which is to provide services. It's not of too many problems and to do so competently. And the employer has an obligation to pay them for their services and to provide a safe workplace and all of the other things that are in legislation. So just cause comes about in a couple of ways. It has to be really, really severe conduct. And this is the counterbalance factor. Because again, the Supreme Court of Canada has acknowledged that work is one of the most fundamental aspects of a person's life. Provides them with the means of financial support, gives them a sense that they're contributing to society. That's a really integral part, you know, beyond that of being a person's sense of identity or self-worth. And so, you know, I, I normally give advice to employers, but I do also act for employees who have been terminated. And it strikes me that there are two pretty significant factors when you lose your job. One is the legal and financial. And so we can talk about that and how that works after. But there's also a very significant emotional component. And, and you know, you're depriving someone of sometimes what has been, you know, their place of self-definition. So, all that background to say just cause is a really high threshold to meet. And so in order to get there, the conduct, if it's a one-time offense, very serious, has to be very serious. You know, things like violence in the workplace, you know, significant theft, fraud. You know, in one of the Supreme Court of Canada cases I was referencing, there was dishonesty in the workplace. They found that there had been dishonest conduct in the workplace, but that wasn't enough. So, you know, it's, it can be a significant single event. But it can also be a, a series of events, right? And so you've probably heard of the term progressive discipline. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, so progressive discipline means that you have put the person on notice that whatever it is that they're doing, um, whether it is you know, that they're showing up late for work, getting into confrontations, creating a toxic workplace, what the court would want to see you do is they want you to give the employee a chance to succeed. So the way you do that is you have to sit them down, tell them what your expectations are, and tell them what the consequences are for not meeting those expectations. And it's really easy to do that, to have, the, I mean, it's a challenging conversation, but it's easy to forget to put that in writing. And so, again, if you want to build a case for just cause, you can try to do it without writing. But again, that's going to make my job a whole lot harder in the future when I have to come up with evidence that doesn't exist to try to support that, you know, this person was given lots of warnings, lots of chances and all that. It's always better than some writing. So can I just ask, when you're talking progressive discipline and you're, you're giving warnings, is it important to have a third party present for that? And are you asking them to sign off 
on something? What if it's just a conversation between two people and unless it's documented and agreed to, it's it's an interpretation? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. So two things. First of all, my rule that I always tell clients when you're going to be having a disciplinary interview, and that's best practice, you know, before you impose discipline, get their side of the story. You know, there, there could be a very good explanation because if you're just looking at something from the outside objectively, it may look really bad, but there may also be a really good explanation for it. And so before you discipline, sit down with the employee and find out what happened. But my rule when you're imposing discipline or when you're engaging in those investigative interviews as management is who of you one of them. If you're in a unionized workplace, and I do advise unionized employers as well, they're going to have their union representative with them. So in that case, it'll be two of you, two of them, probably. You also don't want to overwhelm them or wolf pack them by having a whole bunch of you in a room all going at them with questions. So the general rule is, yeah, two of you, one of them. And it is a common misconception that you need the employee to sign off on the discipline. You know, I think it's a good chance to say, listen, if you would like to, you can provide comments in response. If you think this is unfair, you can say that if you wish, but you don't have to. You know, a disciplinary warning can just be a letter. And as long as, again, there's two of you, one of them to say, no, no, this interview did happen. Here's when it happened and here's how it happened. You can ask the employee to sign off, but it's not fatal. And in fact, what you could do is you could make a note at the bottom if the employee refuses to sign off that says, employees asked to sign off, they refused. And then make sure it goes into the personnel file because these things do have a way of, you know, going missing. The other part there is... I just wanted to kind of, I yeah. sorry to interrupt, but before I not lose the thought, so you're talking about just cause and that makes all sense. So now the termination has happened. What happens with regard to severance or is there any payment? If it's just cause, does that mean that they get nothing or... Does it depend on whatever agreement's in place? And what if you don't have an agreement in place? Okay. There are two ways to terminate employment, right? The first is just cause. And just cause, you need a reason. It has to be a good reason. You have to have done your due diligence. And by the way, before you terminate for just cause, interview them first. So there are going to be two separate meetings in a just cause meeting or just cause termination. So you're going to have the first meeting where you find out what happened, you get their side of the story, and then you put the termination letter together. And my, again, pro tip, put their explanation. Whatever it is that you ask them, put that explanation in the termination letter. Because then they can't go back later and change their story and say, oh, well, you know what? Actually, this is what happened. Because if you memorialize that, if you put that into the document to say, this is what you told us at the time. Whatever you've cooked up since then, you know, really didn't occur to you at the time. So don't go back and try to change your story now. So that's a really good idea. So again, you're going to do the investigative interview, then the termination interview, at which point you give them the termination letter. And yes, if you are terminating for just cause, all you owe them is the uh, outstanding wages that they've earned up to that point, right? So any accrued but unpaid vacation pay, any of them are statutory entitlements, anything like that, but you don't owe what's called pay in lieu of notice, right? So pay in lieu of notice and what's commonly referred to as severance. Severance is a bit of a different thing and it's statutorily right. provided for in some provinces and federally, but you owe them, if you're terminating without just cause, then you are going to owe them notice or pay in lieu of notice. 
There's a whole bunch of ways for get into that as well, because there are a few different ways that you can terminate by providing notice. Well, why don't we we get into that? Because you've been really clear on the just cause. And if there's anything you want to add into that piece to kind of tie it up, and then let's talk a little bit about if there is no just cause, you're terminating for the sake of terminating. Yeah. So with just cause termination, I'll just wrap up by saying, because it is such a high threshold, oftentimes there is going to be a sympathy factor when you get to court. So you need to keep that in mind when you're assessing whether or not it's worthwhile to terminate for just cause. And there's also going to be this idea that if you're terminating, particularly a long-term employee for just cause, they're walking away with nothing. And so it's worthwhile for them to pursue potentially legal action against you. Now, what they'll be pursuing against you is notice. So again, the, the whole thing comes down to how much notice and how do you give notice of termination if you don't have just cause? We've got those two really distinct categories. Category one is just cause termination. If you don't have just cause, and if it's just not the right fit, not working out, you don't have things documented, or you need to downsize, or you know the, the position doesn't exist, or whatever the case may be, you can always terminate employment without just cause. And you can do so for just about any reason, as long as it doesn't contravene one of the other statutes, one of the employment-related statutes. So we can come back to that. That's human rights, employment standards, okay. uh, workplace safety and health, workers' compensation. All those statutes have you know, built-in reasons that you can't terminate, uh, or that you're precluded from terminating. You can't rely on those reasons. So again, if you don't want to get into the reasons for termination, you just want to sever the relationship, you provide notice. And notice can be given in one of two ways. You can do working notice, where you say to the person, all right, at some point way down the road, your employment is going to end. And then they just continue to work for you until the end of their employment date. What I've found is that once you tell an employee that their services are no longer needed, they're less than inclined to continue to do their job. So again, depending on the set of circumstances, it becomes a bit of a headache to try to manage their conduct. The other way to terminate employment is by providing pay in lieu of notice. And you can do that in two ways. You can provide a lump sum payment right at the date of termination where you say, all right, well, you know, we're, you're owed this many months notice of termination, so we're gonna give you a lump sum payment in that amount, or you can do salary continuation where you just say, again, it's like working notice, except they don't come into work. Say your time, your employment is going to end date X way down the road, but you don't need to come into work for the next while and we'll pay you to stay at home to not work. And again, that can sometimes just provide a lot of relief in terms of you don't have to shell out a big lump sum all at once. Um, uh, But then, you know, you have the immediacy of the problem employee no longer being in workplace. Right. So do you have an example of maybe a scenario or a a situation where it worked really well? Somebody, you know, let somebody go, decided to give them their notice, allowed them to pay them out a, a certain amount over time. And is there an obligation to help them find other work? Or is that just up to the employer? In the context of working notice, Generally, that works best if you have, for example, like a plant shutdown, right? So if you're closing up shop and you say, listen, I'm really sorry, but we can't continue to carry on. 
And in those circumstances, what you might do is to provide a retention bonus. And, and there, that can work really well. And you say, listen, the plant's shutting down in six months' time. Tell you what, we'll provide you with X dollars if you stay right until the end and help us close out. You know, their working notice works. You know, a lot of times if the employer is having financial hardships and they say, listen, we just, we can't do this anymore. Your position has to go. What I often advise in those circumstances is you don't have to find the employee find work or help the employee find work. But usually if I'm drafting that kind of termination letter, I'll build something in there that says, you know, we'll give you time off as needed to go to other job interviews. Um, But we ask that you give us at least 24 hours notice if possible, right? Well, and that seems fair and equitable. Agreed. It's agreed, and it doesn't take a lot. You do you want them sticking around and being upset and not focusing and yeah, not yeah. doing the work or work together? Yeah, I mean, as a general proposition, the rule is if you treat someone fairly, they're probably going to be a little bit more uh, cooperative. If you can do it, if you ask yourself the question, well, why why not? Why wouldn't I? I mean, that's a reasonable thing to say instead of just taking a no type of position. There may be valid reasons. There may be good reasons you can't do it. You know, if the person is the only one on shift that day, well, then, sorry, it's not going to work. You know, if they give you last minute notice, but, you know, again, perhaps you can make the arrangements to make it happen. In terms of providing pay in lieu of notice, there are very, you know, specific ways that I tend to draft termination letters. Sometimes you do want to allude to reasons for termination. As a general proposition, you don't. But the rule for conducting a without cause termination is, you know, in terms of the final interview, the termination meeting, you don't have to have the investigative interview, obviously, because you don't need to get into the reasons. But you do have to have a meeting. My, my preference by far, you need to do it at a meeting. And again, same rule applies. Two of you, one of them. I was just going to ask on that, do you offer to be a reference? And I know that now with privacy laws and everything, some people are hesitant to be referenced because they don't know what they can and can't say and what can be used and construed as, you know, you're not going to lie. If there's a reason that you're letting someone go, they may just not be the right fit for your organization. They may be a great fit for somewhere else, but it's a a different company. So any guidance on whether you provide references? That's a tricky one. You can potentially be in trouble no matter what you say. If you give a misleading reference and it's positive, what happens then if the person gets a job and the new employer relies on the things that you tell them and they're not complete, they're inaccurate, and then that person ends up doing the same things at the new place of employment that they did at your place, uh, particularly if it causes harm. You know, if they were causing harm and or damage in your workplace, you let them go and they go cause the same type of harm and or damage. Notionally, you as the former employer could end up being liable. Now, the opposite holds true as well. You know, defamation is a very real thing. So again, if you have the subsequent employer calling you up as the employer, as the reference, and they say, well, you know, how was this person? And your answer is, well, they were lousy. And let me tell you about all the ways they were lousy. Notionally, again, the person could have a defamation claim against you if the things you've said are untrue, but the damages are pretty obvious because they've lost out on income, right? So they've lost out on economic opportunity. So one of the things that, I mean, one of the big trends right now that employers are doing is they're not offering references. They're offering letters confirming service. They say, this employee, this employee was uh, employed with me from date X to date Y. Here are their duties, and we wish them the best in their future endeavors, right? That's about as far as it goes. 
sometimes there are you know circumstances when you really do want to launch the person well, right? It's a really amicable departure. You just can't keep them around anymore. And in those circumstances, yeah, positive letter of reference is not a bad way to go. But again, you do need to be cautious to make sure that everything you're saying is truthful and accurate. If there are some glaring omissions, you're probably better off saying nothing. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Well, that's a good point. With many things, there's a lot of it depends. Yeah. So when you're considering termination, whether it's for cause or without cause, how does an employer determine what sort of payment is provided, whether it's payment in lieu of notice? What are the obligations? Do you simply go by letter of the law or is it on a one-off basis? If it's just cause termination, there's no notice payable, but you may decide that, you know, the person's such a short-term employee, we're really not talking about much. Maybe instead of the fight, instead of the hassle, I'll just provide some notice. And the reason I say a short-term employee is because that's one of the factors you have to consider for figuring out how much notice is payable on termination. And what is short-term? What's that time frame? So so that's, that's a good question. I mean, it can be as short as, you know, a couple of months if they don't make it past the probationary period. There are three different sources for figuring out how much notice someone gets on termination. And the problem is that if you call the Employment Standards Branch, I've had clients thinking they're doing their due diligence. They call the Employment Standards Branch and Employment Standards Branch says, well, this is how much you owe them pursuant to the Employment Standards Code. So that's the first source. So source number one is the Employment Standards Code. But all that does is it creates a floor and you can't contract beneath that floor. And so, again, if you make you as an employee make a complaint to the Employment Standards Branch, that's all they're going to award you. But that's only part of the story. Second potential source is contract. So if you have a contract of employment with a solid termination provision, and those are getting harder and harder to draft these days based on some of the cases that are coming out, then that's going to determine how much they get on termination. And then the third and final source is something called the common law, which is the body of cases out there that have been decided in similar circumstances. And the factors you look at are first and foremost, their length of service, and then things like their age, the nature of their position, and so on. And so all of those things really do play into it. In Manitoba, our courts tend to award slightly less than in other jurisdictions in Ontario, BC, et cetera. But ultimately, it's a range that ends up being somewhere between two to four weeks per year of service. You know, if someone's towards the end of their career, it's going to probably be, you know, on the higher end of the scale. Um, whereas if they're you know, younger, say in their 30s, the you know, number of weeks per year is going to be less. Okay. Can we just touch on what is last chance agreements? So last chance agreements are a, a creature that has been created as a result of you know, human rights issues that arise in the workplace. And one of the big issues that I see and that most employment and labor lawyers see these days in the workplace is the specter of uh, addiction coming to play. And, and so addiction, of course, has been deemed and been defined as a disability under the Human Rights Code. And that means that it needs to be accommodated. 
doesn't mean that you're allowed to come to the work under the influence of alcohol or drugs, but it does mean that some of the undesirable behaviors that are often associated with addiction aren't necessarily going to be considered just cause for termination, right? And we had a case actually just go to the Supreme Court where one of my partners and I there a couple of weeks ago, and in that case, it was a healthcare aide. And she showed up to work under the influence of alcohol. And the chart notes said that she was so inebriated, she could hardly stand straight. And there she is needing to provide care for, you know, elderly, vulnerable people. So she confessed that she has an addiction to alcohol. And so what that means is this addiction to alcohol caused some of her behavior to not be culpable, right? So you can't say, okay, you're an alcoholic. The behaviors they're exhibiting are problematic, so we're just going to fire you. you. You actually have to take steps to accommodate that. It doesn't mean they get carte blanche. It doesn't mean they are allowed to drink as much as they want, show up to work under the influence of alcohol or, you know, late or no show or anything like that. Those behaviors that are sort of typically associated with that type of condition. But it does mean that you as the employer need to take steps to accommodate them. And so... Generally, the way that's done is once some of these problematic behaviors come to light, you sit down with them. And if it's a unionized workplace, you sit down with them and the union and you outline what the problematic behaviors were. You acknowledge that they have said they have an addiction. You're probably going to give them some time away from the office or away from the workplace to seek treatment. And then they, you know, in the last chance agreements that I prepare, they have to undertake not drink. They have to undertake to continue to participate in addictions counseling and so on. I mean, a number of things can happen from this. Sometimes the employee will say, nope, don't want to do it. I'm out of here. And they're just not prepared to go through the steps. But oftentimes they will. And they're you know, grateful to have the opportunity to keep their job. And that's really the point is to you either end up with the employee turning their life around and becoming a more grateful and dedicated employee or you've taken the appropriate steps to warn them that the behavior is not allowed. And so what you can say is in the last chance agreement that a breach of the last chance agreement will constitute just cause. And when you give them time off to deal with it, is that paid time off or? No. Oh, it isn't. No, that's on their, that's on, their, on their own dime. Now, generally speaking, if they go to their physician and they get a doctor's note or something to that effect, short-term disability and or long-term disability may very well kick in and may very well cover those things. And if those don't, if those aren't possibilities, there's also a possibility that EI sick leave might kick in for them as well for the time that they're getting treatment. Um, So there are ways to go about dealing with those issues. Well, it's good to know because again, like progressive discipline, this is progressive well-being. Yeah. For, for lack of a better term, because it is a sure. disability and you're working together. Again, it's how yeah. people feel at the end of the day. And also, I imagine that other people in the workplace see how an employer is treating people. You know, people want to have a sense of belonging and trust with their employers. And so demonstrating humanity to others is is got to be a big deal. Yeah, I mean, there, there are two sides to those coins. You know, sometimes it'll happen that the employees around the employee who ends up being subject to the last chance agreement, sometimes they get pretty frustrated and pretty alienated because of these behaviors. But again, it doesn't, doesn't override the overarching obligation to accommodate. You know, workplace culture can suffer in some of these contexts when they see someone notionally getting away with things that they ought not to be doing. 
but but certainly your obligation as the employer is to accommodate. But you only have to accommodate to the point of undue hardship, right? And so that means you have to bear some hardship, right? You have to have their human rights law does require that you bear some discomfort in order to get there, but not too much discomfort, right? If it becomes impossible, if the person just will not participate in the last chance agreement, well, probably reach the point of undue hardship. If they're putting patients at risk, residents at risk, those sorts of things, that may very well be undue hardship. And so would mental health fall under this same area? Yeah, yeah, it would. You often deal with them in the same way. So if there are problematic, some of the problematic symptoms that arise from mental health issues or that are incompatible with the workplace, again, uh, there's an obligation to accommodate to the point of undue hardship. You know, I've seen employees who have PTSD who know how to deal with it, know how to deal with, you know, getting that sense of being overwhelmed. And the way that they deal with it is they just need five minutes. They need a five minute break to just go be by themselves. They have various techniques they can use, but they just need that five or 10 minutes away from, you know, other people to center themselves, refocus, and then they can go back to it. And as a general proposition, that's not going to reach the point of undue hardship. And so if the problematic behaviors that were exhibiting themselves have led you to say, well, you can't do that anymore. And if you keep doing it, we're going to face terminating, you know, you're going to face the termination of your employment. Then they come forward and say, well, I have a mental health condition. Here's what I need from you. As an employer, probably you're going to have to say, all right, that's reasonable, right? Uh, It's a bit of a hardship, but it's probably not going to be, you know, an undue hardship, so to speak. So is it recommended that because more and more of we hear more about mental health issues and it comes down to communication is what I'm hearing you say and, and safe communication. I mean, you're dealing with people's lives and you've got personalities and and other things, but you have a business to run and, and you're employing people to do the work for you, but communicating, working together, setting expectations is there a way to set up and include these things in a policy in advance so that if it happens that people know where to turn? Like, what do you do? Yeah, a good policy manual is an important thing to have. One of the things, again, another pro tip that often flies under the radar, the regulations of the Workplace Safety and Health Act require that every employer have a harassment policy. So you need to have, and they are... Generally speaking, they're not called harassment policies. You can call them that, or you can call them a respectful workplace policy. But they need to have, it's, it's your obligation. You have to have a harassment policy. It has to be in a place that is easily accessible to the employees, visible to the employees. And it has to have a whole bunch of specific statements in it, not the least of which is that it doesn't replace their right to make a complaint to the Human Rights Commission. So again, something a lot of employers don't know about, but you do have to have that in place. But to go back to what you were saying before, it has to be kept in mind. And I know what I've talked about thus far sounds like a lot of obligations on the employer. And obviously, employment law is much more complex than we'd like it to be. You know, when I before I started practicing employment law, so I did I was a manager in a clothing store years and years ago in a previous life. And I remember having to terminate someone's employment. And I thought that all you needed to do was say you're fired and give two weeks notice. Right. It was something that was put on me, but I was wrong. And so the fundamental exchange, though, is you give me your services as the employee and I pay you for that and I comply with my obligations under the law. And the the, the bargain remains the same. The employee has to be providing value to you as the employer, right? And so if they're not, 
there are ways to deal with that, right? There are always ways to resolve these things. Sometimes they require diligence and patience, but there are always ways to resolve these issues. Wow. So I think that what I'm hearing is, you know, aligning yourself with someone like yourself to, first of all, set up the guidelines and the policies and, and then have a clear mechanism for communication for people to approach, whether it's management or supervisor or what have you. Where does regular evaluation come into play? Everybody gets busy if it's a small business and you don't really have formal things in place. Would you suggest that that just be a regular occurrence? I can only imagine it would be helpful. Ideally, yeah, you, you, you want to have regular communication and you want to have regular updates in terms of where the employee's at. The real trick, though, is to do it honestly. And that's a really challenging thing because people have a tendency to want to please and people have a tendency to not want to make critical comments about others. And, and the flip side of that is it's not particularly constructive to be unduly harsh. You know, oftentimes you want to sandwich a negative comment between two positive comments, right? And so it tends to be one of the rules of thumb. But having said that, you know, if someone is really not doing well, you have to let them know they're not doing well. And you may not want to you know, wait until a performance evaluation to tell them they're not doing well. But something I run into is an employer will come to me and say, hey, we've got someone who's just not working out. They're not doing their job. Everyone's complaining about them. They're you know, really quite lousy. And I'll say, great, let me see their file. And you send me the performance evaluations. The performance evaluations are all glowing. And I'll say, well, how long has this conduct been going on? And they'll say, for years. And there I'm left with a situation where I can say, well, I understand that they're causing problems in the workplace. The trouble is, objectively, if I put that before a judge, the judge is going to look at it and say, well, it looks like they were doing a pretty decent job as far as I can tell. And so we have to go with objective written evidence that was created at the time versus someone's subjective oral testimony that the person wasn't doing a very good job. Generally speaking, the written evidence created at that time is going to win. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, Todd. Any points that we haven't touched on that you think would be valuable to our listeners today? Hmm. Employment law is such a vast area. There are so many more things that we could touch on, uh, and we would probably need another hour plus to get <laughs> each of those areas specifically. Maybe just one question would be, when you consider Employment Law 101, what does that include? What are the top things that business owners need to understand about employment law? Normally when employers call me, it's because they have an employee who is not working out for whatever reason. And, and the employer is inevitably losing sleep. It's rolling over and over in their head saying, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? And it can involve any number of conditions like person is toxic and causing problems. They're not working hard enough, whatever the case may be. And that's when an employer calls me and I will give them what I like to call Employment Law 101, which is actually most of what we've covered today, which is how to go about terminating employment if you need to do that, how to discipline progressively. And then if you do decide that you're going to terminate employment, the big question is, of course, how much, right? So how much is it going to cost you? How do you deal with that? That's generally speaking what I walk my clients through. And the biggest message, once I've given Employment Law 101, the biggest message I try to convey to clients in advance is, again, that ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Pick up the phone and call someone before you pull the trigger. I, I 
had a wonderful client for years. He's since retired and he was a great guy. And whenever he had a tendency to fire employees on Monday morning uh, who weren't working out and uh, he would never call me first, but that was just his you know, way of operating. And he would refer to firing employees as shooting them. So I would get a voicemail uh, Monday morning saying, Todd, I shot another one. You got to help me. And inevitably, it was far more problematic and, and costly than it would have been otherwise had we just worked through it from the outset. But that was how he wanted to run his business. And we always got it wrapped up in some length of time. But again, I don't think that's necessarily the most efficient way to run the business. I think a more efficient way to run a business is let's figure out a strategy for, you know, number one, is the relationship salvageable? Number two, it's not salvageable. How do you go about parting ways in a way that affords them dignity, but also allows you to keep operating the business and uh, allows you to continue to you know, do whatever it is that you need to do on a daily basis to have a successful workplace? Absolutely. And I'm imagining you don't really want to be using the word shooting an employee. But <laughs> no, at least, definitely not. And then you always hear like, never deal with this on a Friday. Yeah. Now, in this case, he waited till Monday, but... I don't know why people tend to just, you know, Friday's the day. Yeah, yeah, and I, get, I agree. That's not not really the right way to do it. One of the closing lines I put, generally speaking, in my termination letters to employees is, if the employer has a benefits package, normally the extended benefits will continue for a few days after employment is terminated. And so one of the things we'll often put at the end of a termination letter is, you know, Please recall that EAP or Employee Assistance Program benefits remain available to you until date X. We encourage you to avail yourself of this, right? And if you do it on a Friday, they can't do that. They can't get access to the resources that are closed, you know, because as I mentioned at the outset, it's a really big emotional hit, you know, it's a psychological hit to lose your job. And so, you know, again, if you remind the person of the availability of those resources, that will often go a long way to creating some goodwill. That's a really helpful point that you made. Do what's in the best interest of the employee. It's a very devastating time when it comes to termination. And it's not that difficult to choose another day of the week and giving them up a little time. And just one last question on that. What about sign-off? So if you are, whether it's for cause or without cause, how important is it to have an employee acknowledge and provide sign-off? And do they have to get their own legal counsel or is that just a one-off situation? It's a good question. In the context of just cause, you don't need them to sign anything. You're giving them a termination letter saying, we don't want you here anymore. You blew it. You have to You have to go and we don't owe you anything. If you're providing pay in lieu of notice, generally speaking, what I put in termination letters is, you know, you outline what their, the employee's entitlement is pursuant to the Employment Standards Code. And then you'll say, but we're prepared to offer you this extra amount in exchange for which you will be signing a release. And so again, you're you know forking out a big sum of money, generally speaking, and so it's not a bad idea to get a sign off to from the employee who will say they're not going to pursue you for make a human rights claim against you, uh, sue you in court, and so on. So if you're going to pay that big chunk of change, I think it's worthwhile to have sign off from the employee in the form of a release. Well, this has been just a wealth of information. Thank you so much, Todd. And I'll just wrap it up by saying, you know, I agree. An ounce of prevention is certainly worth a pound of cure. And we're dealing with people's lives, both the lives of the business and the lives of the people that we rely on to help us run them. So thank you for your time. And that's it for Ask of Expert. That's great. Thanks for having me. 
Wow, that was a lot of great information from this week's expert, Todd Andres, with Pit Blade Law. And be sure to go to vexit.com forward slash podcast to access all the show notes and the great information that Todd's provided for you. We'd love for you to continue exploring and join in on all our conversations taking place throughout most social media channels. Send us topics that you'd like covered or a problem you're looking to have solved. And we'll get it answered for you right here on Ask of Expert. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.